0: Hello and welcome to Hugh's Joy of Food, a bite-sized podcast celebrating all that's amazing about everything edible, from the simplest snack to the fanciest feast. I'm Hugh Smithson-Wright, and this week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review Jackson Boxer's brilliant, beautiful Brunswick house in Vauxhall, reassure a restaurant-goer who's worried that she might have forgotten her manners during lockdown in Ask Hugel, and revel in the joy of sending and receiving a hamper in Treat of the Week. Each week on Hugh's Joy of Food, I review a restaurant in some way, whether it's one I've actually been to recently, a takeaway, or a make-at-home meal kit. First, a disclaimer. My job as a restaurant PR and consultant means that I'm paid to promote the interests of the handful of restaurants I represent. If I feature a client on this podcast, I'll make that clear, like I do on my social media channels, And in all cases, I'll make it clear if all or any part of a meal I review was complimentary. You can rest assured that everywhere I review, I recommend. This show is about the joy of food, so if you're looking for vicious eviscerations, this probably isn't the podcast for you. With that out of the way, it's time for this week's review. A restaurant attached to a salvage merchant's in a slightly shabby mansion on a very noisy junction in South London might not on paper sound like a particularly promising prospect. But the magic of Brunswick House, without doubt one of my favourite restaurants not just in London but anywhere, is that absolutely nothing about it is predictable. I first reviewed Brunswick House for my long defunct blog almost exactly ten years ago, not long after it opened. I said then that it was a just-about-faultless little enterprise which is quietly punching above its weight, and based on my most recent visit, I'd say that decade-old description still holds true. Head chef Jackson Boxer is, for my money, one of the best chefs working in the country today, but outside of metropolitan foodie circles he isn't as well-known as he deserves to be, having never gone down the TV or books route, notwithstanding he'd be absolutely brilliant at them if he did. Telly's loss, however, is the diner's gain, because not being on the box means Jackson is almost always in the kitchen. He was on the day I went for lunch a couple of weeks ago with my friend Kimmy, and the food he was producing was, as on that first visit in 2011, just about faultless. It's hard easily to classify Jackson's style, but it's probably fair to say it's cooking with an international outlook, using the best seasonal British ingredients. The menu is a versatile one, with dishes which size-wise are just as well suited to ordering in the traditional starter main dessert way, or to share. Kimmy and I went down the sharing route, starting with deviled eggs, a dish which, if I see it on a menu, I have to order, topped with shimmering piles of trout roe and black sesame seeds. For a bite-sized snack, it was a thrillingly clever combination, the salty snap of the caviar and toasted notes of the sesame seeds contrasting wonderfully with the chilly heat of the deviled egg yolk. Another dish my regular listener will know I always have to order is steak tartare, or as it's described here, raw dexter beef, smoked bone marrow and crispy shallot. Unlike the more usual finely chopped tartare, here the deeply flavoursome aged beef is more coarsely cut and served loosely assembled, slick with rich bone marrow and stirred through with the crisp shallots. If the deviled eggs were about contrasts, this dish was about balance, the taste of the beef being most prominent as it should be, but flattered by the other ingredients. Although we were supposedly sharing, poor Kimmy had to fight me for more than a forkful. Because I've barely touched a starchy carbohydrate since Valentine's Day, I was initially happy to let Kimmy have the grilled potato bread with green garlic butter all to herself. But when I saw the gorgeous puck of potato-laden bread burnished golden under the grill and served with a canella of vividly green wild garlic butter, I had to allow myself just a little taste. And I'm glad I did, because it was wonderful, and I'd say it's a must-order should you visit. Our two other dishes both featured burrata, which if you're not familiar with it is a cheese not unlike mozzarella, but with a soft creamy centre which when very fresh is almost liquid. First we had a whole burrata, served on a sort of deconstructed pesto of wild garlic, pine nuts and pea shoots. The burrata from La Lateria, a London-based dairy, was a perfect texture, just firm enough to divide up, but with that lovely soft centre which combined beautifully with the pesto. Our other burrata dish was, for me, the star of the meal and a dish which I would and will go back for alone, a burrata-filled omelette with Inoki mushrooms and pistachio butter. When I excitedly posted a picture of it on Instagram, I noted that often the first dish a new chef is asked to make to prove their skill is an omelette, because this apparently simplest of dishes actually requires a lot of skill to get right. Well, Jackson passes that test with flying colours, because this omelette was amazing ethereally light, set to a slight wobble, impossibly creamy, and texturally so clever with the noodle-like lengths of enoki mushroom and a lake of decadent pistachio-flecked butter. It wasn't just a perfect lunch dish, light but substantial. It was a perfect dish. I really can't think of a cleverer or a satisfying course I've had in the past couple of years. Drinking Carver by the glass from the extensive Considered Wine List and with coffees and service, we paid about £48 each and left full and very happy. Unless you order one of the more expensive sharing dishes from the grill, which might include a whole John Dory or a whopping 1.2 kilo belted Galloway beef rib, that's about a typical spend, which for cooking of this quality is very good value indeed. Now, Hopefully I've persuaded you to pay Brunswick House a visit on the strength of the food alone, but wait, there's more. Kimmy and I ate outdoors on the sheltered terrace because we had to, but as of Monday 17th of May, fingers crossed, you'll be able to eat inside, and Brunswick House's is one of the most stunning restaurant interiors in London. The Brunswick in the name refers to the Dukes of Brunswick, whose country palace this was centuries ago, and what is now that noisy-busy junction I referred to was the countryside, and what is now the checkerboard-floored restaurant was their sumptuous ballroom. And remember I said this is a salvage merchants? Well, the dining room is also a showroom, hung with myriad chandeliers, antique mirrors covering seemingly every inch of wall, and antique furniture and statuary encircling the room. And because everything is for sale... While thematically the style of the room remains the same, you never know from one visit to the next what new old artefact is going to be catching your attention. There are very few restaurants I want to be inside of so much and as often as here. Surrounded as it is by the soaring skyscrapers of Vauxhall which seemingly pop up by the week, and with four lanes of traffic roaring past outside, Brunswick House the building is a beautiful anachronism, the restaurant which it houses is a jewel as desirable as any of the antiques on sale within. And lovely Jackson Boxer, channelling all of his energy into refining his craft rather than chasing fame, is frankly a genius. For all information, visit Brunswick House, that's brunswick London. Each week, I answer a listener's burning culinary question in Ask Hugel. This week's question comes from Teresa in Maidenhead, not, or at least I don't think, the former Prime Minister, who says, Hey Hugel, I'm so excited that finally, after a year of lockdowns, closures, tears with an IE and tears with an EA, it looks like restaurants will soon be open again pretty much as normal, as in, the normal we knew pre-Covid, not the ever-shifting new normal we've become accustomed to. The thing is, it's been so long since things were normal that I fear I might have forgotten my manners when it comes to dining out. Has eating out changed much? Will I recognise restaurants as I knew them, or has hospitality changed beyond recognition? What, as Dua Lipa might say, are the new rules? Well, Teresa, firstly, thank you for this brilliant and very timely question. I generally try to avoid covering anything too topical on this podcast, as I know many listeners won't be listening at the time an episode comes out. But I'm delighted to have the opportunity to answer this, because I think we'll all be finding our feet for some time to come, and what I'm going to say won't suddenly be out of date in a week's time. I'm not going to try to answer here what the actual legislation might be around, for example, group sizes, number of households and requirements around checking in. For that... Hot Dinners, the indispensable London restaurant guide I've recommended on Hugh's Joy of Food before, has an excellent regularly updated guide, which I'll link to in the show notes. What I am going to deal with is some basic housekeeping, which I hope will make dining out for Teresa and all of us as enjoyable as possible. To borrow as you did from Dua Lipa, Teresa, rule one is, do pick up the phone. To book, to ask about any rules or restrictions a particular restaurant might have in place, to confirm that you're coming, and to cancel if you're not. While I don't think you need to worry that restaurants will have changed beyond recognition, fundamentally the basic premise of you turn up, eat and pay, they do the cooking, serving and clearing up, is eternal. But it's a highly practical consideration post lockdown to check before visiting whether there have been any changes to a restaurant you're thinking about booking. Does a formerly no reservation spot you could previously rock up to and queue for now require a reservation? Is that casual counter seating you like still in use? Does increased social distancing in the kitchen mean a reduced menu? It can't hurt to call and check. I say call and you're probably thinking how antediluvian of him doesn't he know about the internet? Well yes I do But it's worth pointing out that at least for the first few weeks post-lockdown, some smaller operators, and even some bigger ones, might not have had a chance or the money to update their websites. So call me old-fashioned, but I think a phone call is best. Or at least check their social media. If there are recent posts, trust those as being the most up-to-date information. Following on from this, rule two is, do what the restaurant tells you in terms of mask wearing, checking in, temperature checking, and so on. While national guidelines might change, individual restaurants are within their rights to decide what they think is best for their guests and staff. So please don't kick off if, for example, a restaurant asks you to wear a mask when moving around the restaurant, even if that's not what's required by law. You may well have had both your vaccines, in which case wonderful for you, but the people around you might not have done. Be nice and do what you're told. As well as being nice, be patient. If you're feeling a little unsure of what's what after a year of lockdown, so too will the staff be. Things might be a little, or very, rusty, and we all need to make allowances for this as hospitality finds its feet again. The brilliant restaurateur Jeremy King, he of the Wolseley and Brasseries Adele, both previously reviewed on Hugh's Joy of Food, likens the first few nights of a newly opened restaurant to the dress rehearsal of a play. Everything looks like the actual show, but there are still some lines to be learned and cues to get right. Well, that's going to be true of every restaurant for the time being. Whether they've been in business 10 years or 10 minutes, everywhere is going to be in dress rehearsal mode for a while to come. Of course you expect to get what you pay for, but try to be as understanding as possible if things go wrong. Which, let's be honest, they will. But let's not get too negative here. I worry that perhaps in wanting both to reassure you, Teresa, and also cut the industry I love some slack, I'm painting an overly cautious picture of what to expect. Because to be absolutely honest, all of what I've said already notwithstanding, the simple answer to your question is that yes, Teresa, you are absolutely going to recognise the restaurants you know and love. For sure, there might be some unfamiliar elements and cosmetic changes here and there, but ultimately, hospitality is like the scar under my right eye that my sister gave me with a turfing shovel when I was a toddler. It might look different as the years go by and in certain lights, but it's here to stay. Wherever you're eating out in the coming weeks, I hope you have a wonderful time. We've all waited so long to be able to live our lives normally again, so whatever the new rules might be, let's make the most we can of every precious moment. If you'd like me to have a go at answering your food-related question, you can tweet me at HRWright or send me an email to HRW at For my final segment, Treat of the Week, each week I share something food or drink related that's been putting a smile on my face. This week, I've been musing on how lovely it is to receive, and indeed to send, a hamper. I had a very minor surgery recently, not a facelift, thank you to the several so-called friends who speculated otherwise, and while I was recuperating, I was delightfully surprised to be sent two hampers of delicious things to cheer me up and help with my recovery. The first, from my friends Julia and David, was a bright yellow box of exquisite Italian food from the River Cafe, the famous and famously expensive Riverside restaurant in West London. Opening the box unveiled a packet of tissue-thin slices of silky San Daniele ham, a pot of pesto, a jar of smashed chickpeas like an olive oil laden hummus, a slab of pillowy soft focaccia, mandolin slices of slow-baked potatoes, a bunch of the most beautiful English asparagus, pungent anchovy butter, and a chunk of asiago fresco, a new-to-me cheese, rather like a softer, creamier version of parmesan. Now, I've been lucky enough to eat at the River Cafe a few times, and I can honestly say that everything in the hamper was of the same exceptional quality, which justifies, at least in part, the eye-watering bill which comes with dining there. I was able to make several meals out of it, a plate of the ham with shavings of the cheese, The asparagus simply griddled and bathed in the anchovy butter, the smashed chickpeas spooned onto soldiers of the focaccia, and the pesto on, well, everything. Unable to eat out for the time being, it was like being transported to a terrace table by the river in W6. The second hamper, also coincidentally with an Italian theme, was from my best friend Andrew in Milan. Even as lockdown lifts, neither of us has any idea when I'll be able to go and visit him again. So like Mohammed and the Mountain, Andrew made Milan come to me in the form of a Negroni hamper, containing all the makings of Milan's most popular cocktail, and my favourite, from absolutely fabulous department store Harvey Nichols. Not only was it a thrill to unpack the contents – Campari, cocky Storico Vermouth, and Mermaid Gin – but the physical hamper, a super smart jet black wicker basket lined in sturdy cloth, was a present in itself, and I'm already thinking of ways to repurpose it around the house. For his birthday back in March, my very thoughtful sister, an enviably brilliant gift giver, sent my husband Dave a hamper of meaty treats from fruitpig.co.uk, which included all the ingredients for some very luxurious wagyu and black pudding burgers. Dave, for his part also a very thoughtful and generous giver, loves to send hampers from the ronciologically named hampers.com. Their speciality is sweet treats, think boxes of biscuits, fudge and cakes, but they also have a brilliant range of savoury hampers too, including one dedicated to cheese and port, and others based around wine and nibbles to go with it. The masters of the hamper are of course Fortnum and Mason, who I've previously reviewed on Hugh's Joy of Food, so I won't repeat myself here, but suffice it to say, few gifts are more exciting to open than one bearing the initials F and M. So what is it that's so magical about a hamper? I think it's that, unless it's specifically been put together to be practical, the contents are always an indulgence. Did I need that packet of gossamer thin prosciutto and pot of anchovy butter? Absolutely not. Did they nourish my slightly fragile post-surgery soul? Emphatically. Were the three bottles of spirits needed to make a negroni essentially different from any I could have bought for myself off the shelf? Well, no. But will the having come in a hamper from Harvey Nichols mean I look at them differently as they stand on my home bar? Yes, it absolutely will. For anyone who takes any pleasure from food, and if you're listening to this podcast, I think that's probably you. You'd be hard-pressed to pick a present that's as guaranteed to please as a hamper, however big or small, of delicious delicacies. So next time someone you know has a birthday or an anniversary or undergoes a not a facelift and needs a little cheering up, fire up your browser and find them a hamper that's as much a treat for their soul as for their stomach. Just before I go, I'd like to ask that if you're in a position to, you'll consider supporting one of the many brilliant charities working tirelessly to ensure that children, disadvantaged families and the homeless don't go hungry during the pandemic, such as Magic Breakfast, Fair Share, Street Smart and the Trussell Trust. That's it for this week. Thanks ever so much for listening. If you'd like to get in touch, you can tweet me at HRWright or send me an email to HRW at HughRichardWright.com. And I hope you'll join me next week for more of Hugh's Joy of Food.